0: Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Yes, yeah, so the French, they send a warship to New York City to pick up their gold and bring it back to France. And we're not talking about like the 1700s here. We're talking about 1972. Then the Johnson administration gets into alchemy, and then a world leader with no furniture, and a pacifist who's leading suddenly one of the top militaries in the world. That and other stories in this episode. So let's take world leaders with no furniture for one thousand. We'll start with that. I just think about this scene. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom arrives at 10 Downing Street to take his office. There isn't as much of a break between elections and taking office in that country as there is in the United States. And so, he arrives and finds the rooms nearly empty. What is this, he asks. And he's told by the civil servants, oh, the Prime Minister has to furnish the house. But more than that, the Prime Minister has to provide the china and the teacups for all the social occasions at the house, and pay the servants. Paul well and good for most of his predecessors, Lloyd George, Asquith, Salisbury, Gladstone, they had some money. But Ramsay MacDonald, who in 1924 becomes the first Labour Party prime minister, he was a widower with a modest house and five children from a small Scottish fishing village. He was, as one account said, the first generally poor man to arrive at 10 Downing Street in office. He had spent most of his time either in labor jobs or in government, born to a Scottish farm girl and a farm laborer out of wedlock. He still lived in that same Scottish fishing village, Lossiemouth, but he'd also moved to London and got involved in politics, got involved in the labor movement in the emerging combination between striking and politicking, and some of his views no longer fit in the village in which he had lived. In fact, he was banned from his local golf club because he had opposed Britain's entry into World War I. Ramsay MacDonald would find chairs, and local women from his town of Lossiemouth would come down to fill the void and run the household. He'd also get other help Though that help would come at a political price. But Ramsay MacDonald would become, from improbable beginnings, one of the most interesting prime ministers. Dare I say great? No, not perhaps the great among the prime ministers of the United Kingdom. But one of the most interesting and, and this is the reason I'm talking to you about him, one that Americans should know more about. It was a shock that the small third or even fifth or sixth party, you might say, the Labor Party, a loose coalition of labor unions getting involved in politics with different names that Macdonald had helped form in 1900. It was a shock that somebody from that party would reach the place. This is actually the comment of King George V in his diary. My God, a labor government. What would Grandmama think of it? He was talking about Queen Victoria. MacDonald was only in Parliament and in a position to become his fledgling party's leader because he had swapped seats with the Liberal Party one of the two major parties in the United Kingdom at that time. And if you look at the 19th century, early 20th, it's simply the Conservatives and the Liberals switching places, sometimes Disraeli, sometimes Gladstone, a few others, Asquith, Salisbury, Palmerston, Earl Grey, a few other folks. So MacDonald and others would make deals with the Liberal Party in an area where there's a lot of laboring people, where we're strong, you support us don't run a candidate and we won't run a candidate and take votes away from you where the liberals are strong and working out deals like that in 1906 Macdonald was instrumental in getting his party 26 seats where in an open contest they might not get too many the whole idea of a labor party comes out of the trade union movement but also out of the 1884 act which increased the franchise so that people even without property could vote the Labour Party that is now, today, one of the two major parties of Britain had a bunch of different names in the 1880s and 1890s and were put together in 1900. It actually splits at the time of World War One. Ramsay MacDonald opposes that war. He's an avowed pacifist and he's kicked out of the party Arthur Henderson. Um, is actually supportive of the war, labor member of parliament, and is invited to join Asquith's cabinet. He becomes the first labor MP in a cabinet. MacDonald now is on the outside, but he's organizing. Labor is opposing the draft. They're organizing strikes which are now made illegal by the war. MacDonald will be called a traitor in many quarters. And yet, less than five years after the war's end, he becomes the most powerful man in the British government. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one is he was a pretty good politician, a secretive man, but also able to build alliances and talk to people in other parties. Labor makes an expansion around the time of World War I. Official labor and unofficial trade movements were initially all that was behind the official parliamentary labor party, but after the war, there's an attempt at unification of all efforts. The uppity political types and the actual trade union folks, plus, and this is the way that the party works today, they developed non-trade union constituency groups. Everyone can be for labor. You need not be in a union. The unofficial efforts that Ramsey McDonald is developing are crucial in ending support for war in Poland after World War I. Churchill wants it, others want it, want Britain to get involved in another war, checking um, the Russians invading Poland, and Ramsey MacDonald and others won't have it. Now, is this good for history? Maybe not. But in terms of British public opinion at that time, it shows you how, and something else, in 1918, Britain expands voting to all men and women over 30. When the electorate is expanded like this, labor is well positioned on something else. When the Communist Party seeks to join this labor coalition, the party refuses. In fact, McDonald many times will criticize the Communist Party, will criticize radicals. He'll criticize even striking. He doesn't think, for instance, striking for better wages should be part of socialism. For unsafe working conditions, for other situations, Yes. Trying to take advantage of this new electorate, Macdonald runs for a seat to get him back in Parliament, but it was against a war hero. He doesn't get in. That's 1922. But the next year, 1923, Macdonald wins a seat overwhelmingly in a Welsh constituency. Yes, the British system allows candidates to move around in different places and stand for constituencies even where they might not be from. Lloyd George's post-war policies, by the time you get to 1923, extremely unpopular, unemployment is high, none of the three parties in this election have enough votes. Conservatives have the most parliamentary seats won in the election, but if you combine liberal and labor in 1923, the opposition outnumbers the conservatives. Now there's this real open question, and you have people like Winston Churchill who are laying it down. You cannot allow this radical party into the government. Winston Churchill at this time is a member of the liberal party. He had been involved with Asquith and with George in various cabinet positions. And many people feel that way. They are just not fit to to be governing. They're a party of anarchists, of radicals, of communists, etc. But Herbert Asquith, leading the liberals, makes a decision. And it's partially, oh, the will of the voters. And it's partially politics for him and his party these ragtag labor folks they're not going to do very well in government so he makes a press conference and says we will not support the conservatives we will not keep them in power and you know it's a pretty good point it's like we just ran an election we said we opposed the government that's run by the conservatives. we won't keep them in power but if you're not keeping them in power you're forming a government with labor there's even a statement made that if Labour is ever to take the government, this is the safest way to do it, with the Liberals along with in coalition. So they want Labour to get a chance at the stage to fail, then it will be Liberals and Conservatives just like the old days, and they'll be rid of this uh, third party forever. Now, if you know your British political history, you'll know that not only did that not happen, the Liberals have never seen the inside of 10 Downing again, except uh, for Nick Clegg's recent stint as a deputy prime minister. And they became very much the number three party with Labour the number two. But Now, a key thing that MacDonald does is to not only be prime minister, but to take the office of the foreign secretary for himself. He has views in this area that are quite strong. He's an internationalist and he is a pacifist. He thinks that the reparations that were put on Germany by the government of Lloyd George were too harsh. He dismantles a plan for a British sea base in Singapore. He slowly wants to end the idea of British Empire. He achieves a new understanding with Germany and with France, and he pushes the American Charles Dawes plan through that will reduce German reparations with the help of a U.S. loan, but still pay back in some form everyone. He pressures the French to reduce their demands on Germany or lose British support, and to abandon their occupation of the industrial part of Germany to collect their debts directly. French aren't happy about this. He speaks at the League of Nations for general disarmament. And he recognizes the Soviet Union. The U.S. has not done that yet. More controversially, he provides them with a loan. But ramsey mcdonald's first government is going to be short and it's a loan to him that will make it so a local rich businessman a lossy mouth um, biscuit manufacturer looks at his old friend from his town who has now made it to the big time and says but has no furniture (laughs) and is walking around or taking trains or the like and says this is ridiculous a prime minister must have a car use my car and a driver. Use my driver. And then he helps him get that china to furnish in the prime minister's house. And then, well, just take 40,000 pounds for the expenses that you'll have, and so that you can get some new clothes. One of the problems, not only for Macdonald, but even for the other labor ministers who enter cabinet, is that there are certain outfits that you need to even meet with royal officials and the king is insisting on it and the king's staff insists on it you can't come in here without these you know more expensive clothes and so all of them are grumbling and complaining and so he needs to help out his friends as well so it's a loan pay me back the businessman says sometimes it's not illegal but it makes the papers and it doesn't look good lloyd george previous prime minister before baldwin had also had a scandal involving taking money from some of his political donations. And it all just didn't look good. But that's not really... The more important thing is the communist that will end up sinking his uh, initial government. When a communist paper, the Workers Weekly, is indicted for incitement under a 1797 law for calling workers who refuse to take their guns against other workers... When the military was called out to put out strikes, the Home Secretary was prosecuting that. Labor Party members convinced them, convinced uh, that prosecution to be withdrawn. It comes out in the Daily Mail. The papers in Britain are totally anti-McDonald, anti-labor. brings condemnation from the Conservative Party. And they issue a vote of no confidence. The liberals don't back that immediately. But they have their own. It's not just about the indictment and maybe that the indictment was put aside, but MacDonald answering questions in Parliament hadn't been accurate in some of his answers about how involved he was. So the liberals managed to bring MacDonald down. There's another incident where a letter from the communists to the Communist Party of Britain seems to make it seem like MacDonald is working with the Soviet Union, and that had not been the case, but many of his supporters were proponents of the Soviet Union who tended to look at what the Soviet Union was doing with rose-colored glasses. 1924, snap election is held. Labor loses. But labor is second, not the liberals. And the conservatives win. Baldwin becomes prime minister. People know this. They know the charges weren't fair. They don't blame Macdonald within the labor party. By the time you get to the 1929 election, labor has built its organization wins 287 seats, and is now the largest party in Parliament. It still doesn't have enough votes to win outright, to have a majority, so it has to work with the 50, now 50, liberal seats. McDonald's back in number 10. Here's what Ian Dales, the prime minister's, 55 leaders, 55 authors, 300 years of history, from Walpole to Boris Johnson. I like this book. Here's what it says. A more subtle judgment on MacDonald's first period as prime minister in 1924 than that of ultimate failure might be that he set out to establish the Labour Party as the alternative government to the Conservatives in a predominantly two-party system for the first time. And that goal was achieved. MacDonald's Labour had had their best result thus far, over 8 million votes and an increase by 4% to a share of 37% of the country voting things looked pretty good. Jobless total was lower than it had been a year earlier. Exports were rising. He throws himself now into the naval disarmament cause. And yes, Britain is number one. It has the world's greatest navy. But the U.S. is rapidly seeking parity. France and Italy, at least in the Mediterranean and with some small colonies, are, are looking to boost their fleets. And in the Pacific, Japan is increasing. Everyone's competing. And if it doesn't stop, Macdonald and others feel there will be another war like the one that he opposed and frankly, most Britons were reeling from at this time. So he does something that no sitting prime minister has done. He goes to the United States. Now some perspective here. It's easy with recency to see the U.S. and Britain as kind of lockstep. You know, maybe sniping in a trade issue here or there. But together in the world, that wasn't the case in the 19th century. That's not how American politics worked. There weren't magic feelings or special relationships. And indeed, although we didn't want to be at war with Britain, there were a lot of disagreements, trade disagreements, the Venezuela question during the Cleveland administration, a lot of problems with how Britain handled the Civil War. Yes, they didn't get involved on the side of the Confederacy, but did open many of their ports opened their financial markets to confederate bonds. Liverpool was, um, you know, almost like the Confederacy East. In America, there's a strong, almost the equivalent of what you see with Cuban voters in the state of Florida today. In the 19th century, Irish voters in New York, which is a crucial swing state in a lot of those elections, would have been just as influential. And if you got too close to... The Britons, in, in perspective of voters, that wasn't good for you. It kind of sunk Cleveland in 1888, although he hadn't done anything, really. U.S. politicians also became surprisingly anti-British in the run-up to elections. Certainly James Blaine did this, and certainly Benjamin Harrison's supporters did this. So that's the relationship with Britain. You get to World War I, and while we're allies in that war, initially we got in a lot slower than Britons would have wanted. Woodrow Wilson tries to kind of treat Germany and Britain as equals and even get them to negotiate through him. It's in 1929 when Ramsay MacDonald visits the United States, meets with Herbert Hoover, and pushes the cause of a naval disarmament, which is going to lead to a treaty the next year, that, in my view, is really when you have the first British prime minister, the first sitting prime minister to visit the United States and seek something from the United States. At the moment of leaving American soil, I wish to send you into Mrs. Hoover, and through you to the American people, my warm thanks for the welcome accorded to my daughter and myself, We shall never forget the kindness and hospitality, which which we have been received, which we carry away. And Herbert Hoover, I thank you for your kind message sent as you crossed the frontier from the United States to Canada. I only express the feeling of the people of this country when I say that we were all grateful for the opportunity of manifesting our sincere appreciation of the spirit in which you came to us. So and so, this is all this diplomatic speak signifying this is from the new york times signifying the importance attached to mr mcdonald's visit here the usual custom of having one of his official station meet at new york by a ceremonial officer of the state department will be departed from and he will be met there by the secretary of state stimpson and sir m howard the british ambassador full honors will be accorded him upon his arrival at union station here and after going to the british embassy He will immediately make an official call at the White House. So, um, you know, he's meeting with the Secretary of State. There's business. He makes a speech to the House of Representatives October 7th, 1929. And then he makes a speech to the Senate and he urges the chamber. One of the things that he says is, parody? Take it. You can have it. There can be no war if we do our duty. It'll be next year, 1930 in April that the United States, Great Britain, France, Italy, and Japan will sign a treaty limiting how many battleships they'll construct and the like. The Five Power Naval Limitation Treaty established a ratio to govern the number of capital ships maintained. United States and Britain were assigned values of 10, Japan 6. France and Italy, lesser powers were given 1.6. This is a ratio. That means if The U.S. goes up. The other countries can go up proportionately. There's also other elements to this that they're trying to reduce. Just have a holiday on construction altogether. um, Just not build any ships till 1936. To eliminate some of the heavy cruisers. To have agreements that submarines cannot attack belligerent ships without providing a warning. And must provide safety for the crew if they're attacking uncooperative merchant ships. Unfortunately, Ramsey MacDonald's visit to the United States wouldn't be the big news of October 1929. And after the Wall Street crash, a downward spiral of falling trade output and jobs rapidly led to a worldwide crisis. American lending no longer propped up the recovery in Germany. The loss of export markets exasperated structural problems in the British economy, especially in its older staple industries. An unemployment in the UK reached a million and a half. In January 1930, and over and nearly 3 million by December 1930. He establishes economic advisory councils. He has uh, John Maynard Keynes as one of his advisors. Keynes is not impressed with McDonald, even though he's a labor prime minister. He seems mostly idealistic, and a lot of the idealistic labor people at the time don't seem to know what to do about boosting the economy. And they're not, for instance, so much in favor as you think they might be in terms of some of Keynes' preferred priming the pump activities. The Labor Party is very strict, is split on that. Here's what Philip Snowden, one of the key labor people, says, The trade of the world has come near to collapse, and nothing we can do will stop the increase in unemployment. They start looking at, perhaps we could cut unemployment benefits to save money, save the government. <laughs> I mean, Keynes describes meetings between Ramsay McDonald and Philip Snowden as visits to the monkey house. McDonald, Snowden, they don't want to look into changing monetary policy. They don't want to change the unemployment policy. Keynes at one point says, I'm the only socialist present in these meetings it's such a crisis and no one seems to be able to do anything about it that you get to the point where the king asks for a national government and a coalition is formed between conservatives the labor party and some liberals ramsay macdonald is kept on as prime minister they even go into an election but the conservatives get over 400 seats in parliament they're really the winner of the election but Perhaps because of the influence of the king, perhaps because conservatives now are saying, hmm, this is a bad economic time, it might not get better. Let's put this guy, keep him on the, you know, at the pulpit, and he'll be the face. The Labour Party is so upset that Ramsey MacDonald now is prime minister, propped up by a conservative government who's looking at things like let's cut unemployment benefits and other programs. That they not only replace him as leader, but kick him out of the labor Party. And so there are only about 13 members of parliament that form a national labor group that are with Ramsey McDonald along with the conservatives. Here's what Ian Smith says. Why did he agree to lead or be the figurehead of the coalition in an election? Partially it was a sense of duty. The economic problems had not been solved in a mere two months And maybe a response to the king's personal appeal. Nonetheless, as Ian Smith says, he becomes a prisoner of the conservative majority. And it's not completely true. And this may be one of the the reasons that Macdonald stays on. Because domestic policy, even though he's labor, wasn't as so important. One of the key issues he wants to do is autonomy for the Indian colony. And he's going to take a series of steps and get a bill passed with conservative support that will give some amount of autonomy and a national, colonial, India, all-India government to the colony. It's still a colony, though. It's not independence yet. Gandhi will acknowledge that this Scotsman really put India on a path towards independence. And that may be the reason that he hangs on. But it becomes increasingly clear he's starting to have health problems. He can't see that well they get to the prime minister's question time, and fortunately, it isn't like what it is today where you'd see Boris Johnson on TV answering questions at the pulpit. It's only the people who come to to view in the parliamentary chamber. But nonetheless, he's rambling, and no one knows when he gets up at the pulpit what he's going to say. Eventually, in 1935, he's replaced. Stanley Baldwin becomes... Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald will pass away in 1937. He's important, I think, for two reasons. One is kind of that unsung hero who forced the issue, who kind of gave up this idea that Britain is too high up for a, bra- a prime minister to visit the United States and ask for something and uh, had an influence on all the type of United Nations and peaceful thinking that would come forward. I also think it's quite interesting that you had on the two sides of the pond, you had a liberal, almost socialist prime minister on one hand, and then a conservative Republican president on the other. 1929 stock crisis hits, depression hits, and neither one is able to do anything. And both of them look like their chosen policies have failed. In Britain, the result is you get a conservative government who wants to cut unemployment benefits. In the, in the American side, you get the result is you get a more arguably more liberal Franklin Roosevelt who wants to create unemployment programs. All the way through, Churchill will never have a high opinion of this prime minister, Ramsay MacDonald. It leads him to be very unhappy with both his liberal colleagues and then his conservative colleagues. Poly- colleagues who end up working with him when he's on that side. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long term perspective on investing. And of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. He opposes bitterly the India program that McDonald and Stanley Baldwin pushed through. People in control of their own destiny who are not British by birth, not a high priority in Churchill's mind. This is Robert Waller, a British political expert. How can we judge MacDonald's career overall? Revolutionary socialists will not like what he did. But it might also be pointed out that he was the first person to become a Labour prime minister, and he did it twice. To date, Labour's never won an election, while its far left wing has been in charge. The only Labour government with a strong socialist tinge is, one in the highly unusual circumstances of 1945, after 10 years without an election and following the Great Depression of the 1930s and a total war. Even so, Attlee, Bevan, Dalton, Morrison, and most of the Labour Party leaders were hardly revolutionaries. He cannot be judged to be first rank, but he is a landmark, the first from his class or party to occupy 10 Downing, and also a complex rather than stereotypical fie- figure and an individual who cannot be simplified as a traitor or a hero. When MacDonald loses for the first time, one of the things that the conservatives who take over are going to institute under Churchill's control like the exchequer at that point is to put the British pound on the gold standard. And that's what President McKinley does in 1900. In a gold pen ceremony, he signs the Gold Standard Act, linking American money in line with the price of gold. And that feels like something stalwart, conservative, um making the money not subject to change right it probably feels like all those things the reality is different the fact is gold fluctuates up and down as valuable as it's always been sometimes it can be less valuable it can be cut in half you know there's always changes it does happen that with the alaska gold discovery in the late 1890s and with new mining techniques it was easier to do this step than when McKinley first made his gold standard stance in 1896. You could do it without keeping money so tight. Yet, he signed it and at that time made a lot of sense. It no longer does. And the gold standard is not something we even argue about that very much. Now, there was a little flare-up in 2012. It mostly had to do with Ron Paul and trying to keep the Paulites in the Republican Party. A little bit of flare-up there, but not something we discuss. And you might say, why? When did it all end? When did we stop talking about the gold standard? And, you know, your first thoughts might be, Nixon, he took us off that, right? And there's a role that Nixon played, and that's kind of true, but I really, the final nail in the coffin and the last president in office to seriously consider the matter is Reagan and the year is 1982 and a very obscure commission and some activities that occurred kind of intra the banking and government world ended the gold standard officially. It's worthwhile noting that McKinley's action, putting the dollar on a gold standard, lasted for three decades. In the midst of depression, Herbert Hoover explored severing the tie between the U.S. dollar and a specific price of gold, of maybe issuing some more dollars than you actually had in the gold reserve and tinkering with that a bit, his opponent attacked him. It was a libel against the credit of the United States, his opponent said. And that opponent was Franklin Roosevelt. And of course, one of the first things that Franklin Roosevelt does when he gets in the White House, middle of the Depression, is to take the nation off the gold standard. Roosevelt even comes up with his own price, $20.67. He basically makes up a number. But Roosevelt did something more. So in some ways, it's a little more than what Hoover might have done aware that just, you know, releasing the gold standard, that might have people flocking to gold and away from gold and away from U.S. dollars, dollar might drop. So he also made it illegal to hoard gold and required people who had gold, individuals, U.S. citizens who were holding gold, to deliver that to their banks. And then the banks would deliver it to the Federal Reserve. It's to the point that the Federal Reserve bankers who don't like this policy one bit are even wondering if this should be done. And people are calling this an immoral policy. You're telling government, you know, anti-American, you're telling U.S. citizens they can't own gold. It's even been said some of the pictures where you see people in the Depression lining up at banks like getting there, some of those were the lines that people had to go on to sell their gold to the banks and then to the United States. A small exception is made for dentists who can keep some gold for fillings. Um, Responses to this policy over the years have been mixed. Some say it prolonged the depression. Most don't. I mean, Milton Friedman and Ann Schwartz um, believe it was the most effective thing that Franklin Roosevelt did. Gold is scary in our history. Gold can ruin currencies. It can ruin countries. If people there think it's too valuable, cloaked in economics, we're really talking about psychology and gold has something there, FDR was essentially taking that psychology away. We're not even going to let you own gold, so there's nothing else but our dollars. And he happens upon perhaps something else that countries in Europe, seeing Nazi Germany come along, seeing the price that America is paying for gold and start selling our gold as well, in one year the U.S. Treasury will go from having $7 billion worth of gold to $17 billion worth of gold. FDR's action, it turns out, you know, as strange as it might seem to us, you can't own gold less and longer than McKinley's. Now, we would go back into having a relationship with gold. The currency would never be like a McKinley-style gold standard again. But that policy would continue. In fact, the Kennedy administration takes it one step further in two ways. They also ban U.S. citizens from owning gold abroad, and they engage in a mission dubbed Operation Goldfinger. (laughs) Yes, so you have this situation during Lyndon Johnson's administration. If holders of dollars or other U.S. securities were to cash in their dollars for gold, the U.S. doesn't have enough. So it starts in the Kennedy administration, continues through the Johnson administration, and some treasury officials in early 1966 say, look, if we just spend a few million dollars, we can probably get that from Congress. We could have several billion dollars in gold reserves. And they're convinced by a group of scientists, really hundreds of them on this project, that they can find gold in places that people haven't thought of before, seawater, meteorites, plants, scientists suggest you can use nuclear explosions to go deep inside the earth and find gold there. Or we can try to turn base metals into gold. This isn't like medieval alchemy anymore. We're going to use particle accelerators. That was the thinking of the time. They even have a name for it. Operation Goldfinger. Here's what a treasury report says the president's scientific advisors are confident of the success of the program and estimate that new gold reserves valued at up to 10 billion could be expected within five years many parts of the federal government are involved they start looking in central nevada at mountains that they haven't looked at before but suspected that maybe gold was there because sometimes little traces of gold were found in coal the U.S. Geological Survey starts sifting through coal in dozens of locations in Appalachia. There's rumors that in Czechoslovakia, there's a plant, that um, marsh horsetail, that has gold in it, traces, and scientists look through that. They're not able to extract anything. They do find in Cortez, Nevada, as a result of this Goldfinger project, a mine that actually does produce gold. Um... But the nuclear uh, explosions to get gold in the middle of the earth and things like that doesn't work. (laughs) Francis Bader, an economist in the Johnson administration, says it was a gimmick. It was a sideshow. At best, it worked as a psychological attempt to ease world markets by hinting that the United States, if they needed to, could find gold in other places. So like, you know, Don't mess with us kind of thing. If you're going to try to cause a run on our dollar. In fact, Johnson has the Bureau of Mines release a public announcement in 1968 that there's been a major technical breakthrough that would dramatically increase the amount of gold produced in the United States. Here's the point. Sometimes fiat money systems or just like... creating money at the printing presses can be made fun of. Um, silver, when someone like William Jennings Bryan was advocating for silver money, that was certainly poked fun at. But it isn't like just because you tie things to gold, you're not without some potentially ridiculous situations and also potentially economically dangerous situations. The ban on owning gold Less until the Ford administration. It's a strange way that ends. Ford is watching TV. And a gold advocate holds up a brick and says, do you know I can't own this? It's illegal. And Ford happens to be watching this program. And he said, I had no idea. And he goes and talks to his advisor. He said, yes, this is still the current policy of the United States. He issues an executive order. Later, um supported by laws from Congress, that it's now legal to buy and sell gold. And you can even, if you want, you can demand that contracts be fulfilled by gold. But it's Nixon, not Ford, who had already completely freed up the separation of the dollar and gold by closing the gold window, where you would go and could exchange, you could get a gold value for dollars, working with other countries. But uh, if all this limiting sounds crazy to you, um, in the 1930s, the Supreme Court, which often limited Roosevelt's New Deal, did not do so with his gold actions. The Constitution, according to the court, is clear. Congress is in charge of the money. Money printed, money used for transaction and for salaries, money's in banks, checks up against a bank used to pay for services, presented like a dollar is, gold used to pay for things, all under Congress control. It could be detestable policy, could be unwise, could be immoral, as critics said about the New Deal policy, but Congress, the court said, had the power. Now, it won't be so strict with just the U.S. naming a price for gold and calling it all in after World War II, but you have the Bretton Woods Agreement. 44 countries meet in New Hampshire. The U.S. would be open to buying and selling gold. It opens a treasury gold window, sets a price at $35. The International Gold Exchange has all other currencies tied to the dollar and the dollar to gold, but its money isn't directly tied to it. I mean, it is in a way, but it's really not. There's too many exceptions. When the dollar was high and U.S. imports became strong, hey, you know, keep that uh, tying it to gold. It's fine for us. Our dollars are strong anyway. When that changed and when countries like Germany and France got stronger after the war and rebuilt their economies, started to export to the United States, the United States didn't exactly use gold as an exchange, but didn't keep it as a standard because what they would do is these currency swaps that would allow them some flexibility, You know, in effect, creating an extra billion dollars in revenue off that gold standard, you know, in 1962 when they needed to. It was pseudo standard is the way that Milton Friedman explains it. And they would have a pool of European countries that could loan, essentially loan through currency swaps to the United States whenever there was a reciprocal trade balance that required it. It does collapse, though, in 1968 two ways. There's a run on the British pound and then also... The French decide to stick it to the United States, Charles de Gaulle president, and to just buy gold instead of buying dollars. Nixon closes the gold window in 1971 and takes us off that standard. Now, there is a shock when Nixon does this, and one of the moments is a French warship is sent to New York in order to get the French reserves at the New York Federal Reserve. But the most serious political move isn't there. It was in 1980 when the Republican platform pledged to look at the gold standard, and Congress voted to set up a committee. Some supporters of Reagan, most notably Jesse Helms, wanted this commission and really wanted to take a serious look at the gold standard. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. There's one meeting where Reagan says no civilization has survived fiat money. And coming from the 1970s, which were very inflationary, maybe it would be simpler to just go to money with substance. And he's thinking that initially. Milton Friedman is one of the opponents of this. And in a meeting in the White House, he discusses that. Today, fiat money, he tells Reagan, is taken a standard. You're right to fear inflation, but it would be better to solve the actual problems causing inflation than just to fix the, mean of, the means of exchange. That's Friedman's point. And, um, and it's another voice that says, well, why not a commodity standard? Mr. President. And that was Alan Greenspan. Reagan seems to like this. I used to pay $50 for a suit. Now, $50 will hardly get it cleaned. I don't know if that's true in 1982, but that's... You know. There's a meeting in the Treasury's cash room where citizens actually arrived to exchange gold and silver to the federal government during the Civil War. And here, Don Regan, later become chief of staff, Don Regan, as treasury secretary, you know, says that this is going to be a tough issue and this commission is going to take a very long, long time to decide. That gets out in the press. It echoes an article in the Wall Street Journal by Alan Greenspan as well. We have to have more time to think through the issue and all its permutations. Uh, They end up extending a deadline that they had for one month to make a decision to six months or even longer. That pretty much kills the the idea of the Gold Commission. Here's the New York Times, April 1st, 1982. The United States Gold Commission today formally rejected the use of gold in either the domestic or international monetary uh, systems. The 17-member commission, after studying the question for more than eight months, concluded in its final report, while there might be a future occasion when gold rolls should be enlarged, The majority of us, at this time, favor essentially no change. The Commission did, however, decide to recommend that Congress authorize the Treasury to mint a new gold coin dubbed the American Eagle that would provide an alternative to sending dollars abroad for investing in gold coins issued by such countries as South Africa, Mexico, and Canada. The American Eagle would have no dollar denomination, would not be considered legal tender, and would be exempt from both capital gains and sales taxes. Essentially, its gold coin of gold happens to be an American Eagle, but it's just a piece of gold. Donald Reagan said at a news conference, In domestic policy, the majority concluded that under present circumstances, restoring a gold standard does not appear to be a fruitful method for dealing with the continuing problem of inflation. In international policy, the majority concluded that it favored no change in the use of gold in the operation of present exchange rate arrangements. Writing in Forbes, Dometrovic makes a nice point in 2012. This is after there was a a slight uh, revisit of the issue in the 2012 election. There was a minority report and a majority report, and the minority report is written by, among other people, Ron Paul, congressman then, not a celebrity yet but the majority is authored by Anna Schwartz, who had written a relatively famous monetary policy book with Milton Friedman. It passed on recommending a return to gold. Instead, the report looked sternly at the Fed and asked for them to do better in their actions. My own hunch is that the Fed finally got serious about both not overprinting the dollar and not having wild gyrations in monetary production. In other words, Trying to provide as much money as the real economy needed for growth, because the Fed was scared it might be put out of business by the gold commission. New York Times has this little nugget: Inflation in the United States has been cut roughly in half since the commission was set up, and much of the impetus for restoring a gold standard has been lost. Although no essential change in the gold's role was in gold's role was proposed, Mr. Reagan said of the commission's efforts, "They were worthwhile." Those who hold views on gold hold them very strongly. You, there you have it. So it's this very obscure 1982 Gold Commission that decides that McKinley's policy of 1896 will not be the policy now of the United States. Look, there's talk about inflation. Well, you see many prices going up, how it's going to get into the inflation computations and the like, we'll see. Um, one thing that I think you'll hear a couple of comments about gold, and this is My History to Beat Up Your Politics, Not economic, so I can't answer you for sure. I do suspect that there's too many problems with gold standard in terms of um, using it as a cure for inflation. And then there's also this negative history associated with its connection to the late Gilded Age. You really look at a commission that was set up by a Republican president who had a lot of support at the time and was initially leaning for it, his treasury secretary, and he is the president, let the ideas of more gold bugs, like modern-day gold bugs like Ron Paul, die on the vine. And that 1982 moment is really the last time you can say officially there was consideration of this issue. All parties now disagree with something like the Gold Standard Act that McKinley put through in 1900. Two topics of interest. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We have a Patreon. Go there and support the show. www.myhistorycanbeatup www.patreon.com/mhcbuyp. Thanks for listening.